Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control with the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3. Ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver. When did biohacking like became, become a word or a thing? We've always been doing it, but we gave it a name. I mean, if you look at our ancestors, the animal kingdom as well has been relying upon, you know, plants, root, barks, leaves. Supplementing with certain things can certainly fall into the category of, of using certain hacks to adjust your biology, which is basically what biohacking is. You know, since the 40s, we've known that, you know, I'm just going to use a, a far out example here, like sunlight on a man's balls can increase libido and testosterone, right? So now these days we have all these people day to my boyfriend. Do, do some perineum tanning. <laughs> but now now we have all these these red light technologies that joking aside, you know, when a man uses, you know, like 10 to 20 minutes of like, uh, you know, a mix of 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 different red lights, like infrared light, you know, on his gonads, you actually see an increase in testosterone and, and blood flow. And, and so you know, it's something our ancestors were done with the sun and now we're doing it with, with red light panels. This podcast exists because I love talking to people and I love going deep. The purpose is to plant seeds of inspiration. We enter a space of vulnerability and relatability. And what you realize is that we are so much more alike than we are different. To quote Ramdas, we're all just walking each other home. And the show, it's just one step. I'm Danica Patrick, and I'm Pretty Intense. Welcome back to the Pretty Intense podcast. On the show today is Ben Greenfield. Uh, for any of those people out there who have been doing any biohacking or heard about it, you probably have heard of Ben Greenfield. He is a human performance consultant. He's a speaker, a New York Times bestselling author of 17 books. I have his book, Boundless, and let me just tell you, it's kind of like the Bible of biohacking. Having just done the interview, wow, whatever he's doing to biohack, his mental clarity is working because he was so sharp. Like I would ask a question and he would not only answer the question, but other questions and give stories and examples. And I can tell how maximized he is. And so a lot of the interview, we, we, we talked about, you know, biohacking itself, where it came from, what it's meant to do, genetics, and uh, all of the things that contribute to the person that we are. It was an incredible interview, so much information, and there's no way we can possibly touch all of his, his areas of expertise and experience. Um, so get his books for that. But, but today was a really, really good, it was a really good deep dive on, you know, the background and the understanding of, uh, of our body, how it works and what we can do to maximize it. So enjoy the episode and don't forget, get a pen and paper because you're going to want to write some things down. I know that this podcast is probably all about driving race cars, right? Oh, yeah. That's the only thing I want to talk about. I, it's the only thing I know about. Well, let me tell you this. I went to race car driving school <laughs> okay. in New Jersey. So um, I probably, uh, and, and I'm just throwing this out there, but I probably could go head to head with you and give you a really good run for your money because I trained for a solid two days. Um, 
most of it sitting in a classroom looking at a whiteboard while staring wistfully out at the actual cars and wishing I was driving those. Uh, but but I'm pretty sure I've got all the race car driving chops I would ever need to give you a run for your money. So I'm just throwing that out there. It's kind of like since I have your book, I feel like mm-hmm. anything there is to know about hacking my life, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm pretty equipped by now. It's probably very, very, very similar. Well, ju- just if you've ever gone out to a restaurant to eat, then uh, then you're likely uh, well on your way to becoming a nutritionist. <laughs> I would say that that's probably pretty big, pretty good corollary to my race car driving experience. So there you go. However, if you're a doctor, they don't barely teach you anything about nutrition in school. Isn't that the case? Yeah, you know, you hear some people say that physicians get two days. Some people say physicians get two weeks. I think it's a little bit unfair to the medical community, actually, because, you know, let's face it. Doctors are studying microbiology and biochemistry and chemistry and could probably pick apart the molecular constituents of, of like a steak better than many nutritionists could. Yet at the same time, when it comes to applying what I would what I would call just just like a real functional, holistic aspect of nutrition to healing, you know, oftentimes that's that's overridden by the concept that, you know, a a pharmaceutical, for example, can affect just as good, if not greater change, which I don't think is the case. However, I I do think that doctors do, even if they maybe maybe don't know it, know a lot more about about nutrition and nutritional chemistry than the general public and most nutritionists and registered dietitians. And furthermore, like I know a lot of really good docs who have done a ton of continuing education after medical school. So maybe they didn't learn it in medical school, but they learned it after. So I think it just kind of depends on on the physician, but I never want to be the guy who just like throws all doctors under the bus and you know says they don't know anything about diets. So, yeah. But I suppose it could be imaginable that if you're interested in the human body, which a doctor must have must have a level of interest in the human body, then it's imaginable that they would be interested in what goes into the body. So by nature, they have yeah. a curiosity, probably. Yeah. Let, let's hope. Let's hope at least. Um, what, uh, speaking of curiosity, uh, I mean, it's a really, probably a very basic question. Um, but I have a follow-up that I'm really curious about, but I mean, what is your fascination with the body? I mean, clearly you have a deep fascination with performance and, uh, excellence and maximizing. So like, where does that come from? I, I didn't really grew up that interested in the human body, you know, aside from the fact that I owned one. Um, I, I wasn't too interested in, in the mechanics of how it works. Uh, however, when I was 13 or 14, I discovered the sport of tennis. And that kind of like pulled me from being a total geek who was only interested in like, you know, pulling apart the motherboard on my computer and playing chess and you know, toying around with, with violins and musical instruments and just, you know, being a, a quintessential homeschooled geek uh, into being a little bit more interested in, in physical culture, so to speak. Right. Like I remember my, my dad took me to Gart Sports down the street, the local sporting goods store. And, I, you know, because I was playing tennis and I want to get stronger. So I got a set of 10 pound dumbbells. I had no clue how to use them. Like the first exercise that I learned, and this was just based on my own like intuition, was I would like lay on my belly on my bed 
and have the dumbbells on the on the floor and do like basically like a preacher curl on my on my stomach while I'd watch TV, just thinking that, you know, well, at least it's going to give me strong arms for tennis. Right. And then um, I think the second piece of exercise equipment that I got was again, I saw this on TV. It was like one of those as seen on TV ab devices. It was that one that you that you put the pad against your stomach and kind of pull into your stomach doing an isometric contraction to make your abs stronger. So I either damaged a whole bunch of my internal organs when I was 13 years old or else actually, you know, worked my core a little bit. But, but, you know, I started running up the hill back behind my house and then, you know, I had a coach and I started doing sprints and, you know, saw my body just start to morph, which I actually really, really liked. Um, and I, I really liked the effects that this type of physical training was having on my tennis performance. And, um, you know, and then I, I got into, I got into nutrition. I got more into weightlifting. I, uh, I don't think this served me too well in the whole functional realm of sports performance, but I was super into Rocky. So I'd like watch Rocky films and lift weights and exercise. And I started getting super into it. Like even when I was like 14 or 15, um, you know, my garage gym kind of morphed into a pretty impressive little facility. And I, I had a few mentors in later years of high school, a guy who was a professional bodybuilder who taught me a whole bunch about nutrition and more about lifting. Uh, another one of my dad's friends was the Washington state powerlifting champ. So he taught me, you know, how to clean and how to deadlift yeah. and um, how to jerk and push press. And he taught, he taught me all these moves, which really amplified my performance in tennis. And it got to the point where I went from wanting to be, um, kind of like in early high school, a computer programmer and video game designer, hmm. which would probably would have made me like a multi-billionaire by now. I'd probably be like some <laughs> e-gamer uh, or, or Zuckerberg. Uh, but I instead uh, walked on to the college tennis team and declared a major in kinesiology, which is basically like, you know, glorified personal training, but, right. you know, study of biomechanics and, and uh, hmm. human movement and physiology. And then I got, I got so into it, especially like the, you know, like we were talking about earlier, like a physician will study a lot of biochemistry and microbiology and organic chemistry. I got so into that side of, of science after not being that interested in, in science all through high school, um, that I, I decided I actually kind of want to be a doctor. And so I took all the pre-meds, wow. um, got a master's degree in exercise physiology and biomechanics, wow. you know, took the MCAT, wound up applying to medical school, got accepted to a bunch of medical schools. Oh. And uh, I actually decided to like take a gap year and work a year in the private sector. And, and part of that was because I just wanted some time off after education. Yeah. And part of it was because I was looking at a couple of MD, PhD programs that I didn't get accepted to. And I was kind of, kind of pissed off about that being my little proud, narcissistic college student self. And so but if you admit I, it, it's okay. You're not, if you admit it. Yeah, I guess so. If, if a narcissist didn't miss their narcissist, they're not a narcissist. Exactly. Um, but then I, uh, I, my, my work in the private sector was I got a job in hip and knee surgical sales for this company called Biomet. And so you know, my job consisted of driving around to doctor's offices and, and, you know, scrubbing down and attending at surgeries with my little laser pointer, showing them where to, you know, where to put the overpriced hips and knees they were implanting in morbidly obese patients who probably through preventive medicine 
wouldn't have had to overwhelm our insurance system and and get get all these implants put into their body while these you know rich doctors with their boats and their cars complain the whole time about all the paperwork that dictated that they didn't have time to you know go and enjoy those fancy boats and cars you know, the, the whole experience for me in like modern allopathic medicine kind of left a little bit of a bitter taste in my mouth and so after like five months in that job i quit and kind of got back into health and fitness, which is all I'd done in college. You know, I worked as a personal trainer and a nutritionist all through college. So what year was that a, for timeline purposes? Like how? Oh, that was like 2005 okay. or so. So, um, so then I, I literally just like walked to the athletic club that was close to the apartment I was living in and slapped down my resume and asked for a job. You know, I was already a certified personal trainer and a nutritionist. And that, that was a lot of what I'd done for the past few years. And, um, you know, I, I got a job managing that gym, managed that gym for a couple of years, and then eventually met a local physician. Uh, and he and I branched off and started a whole sports medicine facility where we had, you know, massage, physical therapy, chiropractic, sports performance. Uh, we had all these high speed video cameras to analyze gait and do bike fits and swim analysis and run analysis. We had a we had a whole uh, uh, calorimetry lab where we do like VO2 maxes and resting metabolic rates, uh, big functional exercise facility. So I, I directed that sports performance facility for about uh, four years. And then when my wife got pregnant with our twin boys, kind of realized that the, uh, the, the hours that I was putting in were kind of unsustainable you know, just like waking up at, at 5 a.m. to go train clients till 10 a.m. and then a couple hours off and then, you know, work through lunch and a few more hours off and then get home from work at like 9 p.m. and, you know, check a bunch of emails and, you know, work on the computer for a while and go to bed. And so I, uh, I kind of mapped hours of dictating. Yeah, exactly. So, so I mapped out this plan to, um, do what was really in my heart that I wanted to do, which was do a lot more writing um, kind of like leverage my knowledge a lot more, create like information products, books. I started a podcast. I started a blog. I started a newsletter. Um, and in 2009, I was voted as America's top personal trainer by the National Strength Conditioning Association. And that kind of thrust me into the limelight of like traveling around all these conferences, giving talks from stages to personal trainers about the fitness business. And, you know, I was kind of making a name for myself there. And so, um, so from about 2010 onwards, you know, I, I started doing a lot more what I do now, which is, you know, I, I coach and consult with people from all over the world about, you know, health and performance and, you know, sleep, gut, you name it. And then, then I do a podcast, do a blog, write books, write articles, you know, do some investing in the health and fitness sector. You could have literally turned every one of these chapters into a book, but you put them all in one yeah. book, which is like so ambitious and so cool and just also that you know says how much you wanted to get that information out there so what was it when did biohacking like became become a word or a thing do you really like when did biohacking become a thing that you'd seek and try and figure out and have we actually always been doing it we just gave it a name yeah, it is it's the latter. We've always been doing it, but we gave it a name. I mean, if you look at our ancestors, and this is interesting because I was having a phone conversation with somebody about this yesterday um, because they said, well, I want to do this and this and this, but I don't want to take 
any supplements at all. It's like, you know, whatever they had, you know, low vitamin D and low red blood cell magnesium and some issues with, with the gut. But they're like, you know, I just want to do this through, you know, food and movement, which, which is kind of laudable, you know, want to take a natural approach. Yet when you look at our ancestors, you know, humankind for all of its existence and the animal kingdom as well has been relying upon, you know, plants, root, barks, leaves, teas, tinctures, powders, oils, salves, you know, blends, all, all these things that we get from nature, the emergence of say, um, modern encapsulation technology, which allows us with a little bit of better living through science to do those same things and harness those same herbs and plants and powders and extracts, et cetera, but in a little bit more of a convenient manner, doesn't mean that something like supplementation is unnatural. It's something that we've done for a long time. Uh, you know, and in the realm of, of biohacking, and I would say, you know, in some ways, you know, supplementing with certain things can certainly fall into the category of, of using certain hacks to adjust your biology, which is basically what biohacking is. Um, to a certain extent, we, um, we do that with technology too, right? Like, you know, since the forties, we've known that, you know, I'm just going to use a, a far out example here. Like, sunlight on a man's balls can increase libido and testosterone right so i've been recommending that every day to my boyfriend i'm like let's just put some sun on your balls do do some perineum tanning (laughs) but now now we have all these these red light technologies that joking aside you know when when a man uses you know like 10 to 20 minutes of like uh you know a mix of 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 different red lights like infrared light you know on his gonads you actually see an increase in testosterone and and blood flow And, and so you know, that it's something our ancestors were done with the sun and now we're doing it with, with red light panels. Uh, and, and ultimately for me, the initial idea that there are things that you can do that go beyond just say like exercise and nutrition to amplify muscle growth or recovery or sleep or gut health or anything else was something I discovered when I was bodybuilding because I had a brief stint for a couple of years in college as a bodybuilder. So I was about 175 pounds in college. I got a dare from one of my friends to sign up for a bodybuilding competition that was like 11 months away. So I signed up for it and, you know, just started lifting like an animal and, you know, downing these man in a can chemical infused protein shakes like six times a day and, you know, showing up at the gym at 4 a.m. before all my classes and, you know, downing a bunch of red line or whatever other mix of pre-workouts happen to be at the gym and, you know, get my, uh, yeah, they, they work. I mean, they're, they're essentially, uh, you know, a mix of, you know, ephedra and sildenafil, you know, basically an, an upper with something very much like Viagra for blood flow, but, but you know, they, they work, they're uh fast track to a heart attack at the gym, but they work. Um, and so I, uh, I, I started bodybuilding, you know, just lifting like an animal. So I put on about 45 pounds of muscle and, you know, wound up competing, uh, at 215 pounds and about 3% body fat. But along the way, of course, via all these magazines and old school online forums, you know, you, I started to delve into, you know, all this bodybuilding lore and literature. And I think bodybuilders, when it comes to the physical culture aspects of biohacking, were some of the original biohackers as far as like, oh, here's the, the pill you pop and here's what you inject. And here's the Here's the different, you know, creams and powders and, you know, everything from, um, 
you know, peptides and SARMs to wrapping tourniquets around the muscle to decrease blood flow to increase results. So a lot, a lot of the stuff people are, are funny enough, just now kind of like making popular and discovering in the past five years, you know, 20 years ago, bodybuilders were doing this. So, so that was kind of like, even though I was a poor college student, all I could afford was like creatine and tuna and protein shakes. I still, you know, paid attention to a lot of that stuff. And then, um, you know, in, in the past several years, biohacking seems to have just exploded in terms of a term that is used to describe a lot of things that really I don't think are biohacking, right? Like I don't think say like, um, you know, let's say, you know, putting butter or ghee or coconut oil into your coffee or going for a walk barefoot in the sunshine is biohacking, right? That's just like basically a cooking and b walking outside in the sunshine without your shoes on. It's not biohacking, but the original biohackers, if you actually look at kind of like the history of biohacking, they were called grinders, right? They called their body wetware and they would use technology that they'd call hardware to amplify certain aspects of human function. So these would be like the type of people who, um, install like a, a tiny magnet in the chest that will vibrate every time that you face true north or small magnetic implants in the ears that enhance hearing. Or you might find a, you know, a story online about the guy who injected chlorophyll into his eyeballs for night vision. Um, or uh, another example would be Kevin Warwick, probably the original so-called human cyborg who literally he and his wife uh, installed like magnetic implants in their fingers to be able to kind of like that movie Minority Report, be able to interact with screens and technologies. And so that that I really think is like the true original term of biohacking, literally like a computer hacker taking apart a hard drive and amping up the graphics software or the graphics card or, um, you know, or, or defragging a computer and make it run faster or whatever, you know, th these people are using like technology to literally implant things in the body or remarkably and quite significantly alter human biology in a way that I think is a, is a true hack. I think a lot of what we do now that we call biohacking, even though of course the term has umbrellaed to cover a lot of different things is really just like using smart living and science to be healthier. Right. So, so yeah, I, th I think it's kind of a, an overused term, but I, th I think that the, the history of it is, is quite interesting, a lot more fringe and far out and even arguably in many cases unhealthy compared to, to uh, how modern biohacking looks. It's similar to like a, like a ketogenic diet, right? Like a modern ketogenic diet of say, like, um, you know, eating a bunch of coconut oil, fat bombs and, you know, having chicken wings, but no bread at the steakhouse and, you know, drinking ketone esters and ketone salts developed for Tour de France cyclists in the U.S. Department of Defense is way different than like ancestral ketosis that our ancestors would have done, which would have been accomplished through periods of intermittent fasting or religious fasting, high consumption of plants and vegetables, and some amounts of kind of like nose to tail animal consumption without the introduction of a lot of starches and sugars, a lot of low level physical activity throughout the day and amplification of blood glucones and burning fats through, through that type of natural living versus, you know, kind of like modern bastardized so-called dirty keto where, 
yeah, you're in a state of ketosis, but it's not like the right. healthy form. Right. So we, right. we, we humans are able to bastardize just about anything. Well, it seems, especially once it becomes an industry. Yeah. Well, any, any, follow the money, any way to monetize something. Um, it's a guideline too. I mean, biohacking as a guideline is something, you know, that it can be useful, but I just recently was, uh, doing a farm tour and, uh, in the farm tour, the guy was talking about how much of the bioavailable nutrition is lost. And when you, as soon as you pick a leaf off the vine, it's like within the first 15 minutes you get, I don't know what he said, 75% of it or something like that. And then, you know, by the time the next days go by, you're down to like 25% of, of the actual mineral nutrition. I'm not getting all the words right, but mm. basically the nutritional value of it, it just completely, uh, it declines so much. And so when I think about um, biohacking, it's like, and, and in the way that maybe is not accurate in describing it, it feels like we're all trying to get back to a state of, um, natural like homeostasis with the body than it is that we're trying to somehow become something above average elite human. We're trying to go, how can we get this body to perform in the way that it was supposed to before we had all this other shit going on in the world and we sat next to our phones and we did the interview on our computer and we've got Wi-Fi in our houses and we've got, you know, planes flying overhead, dropping things. And, you know, I mean, like we've got so much environmental going on that it feels like we're just trying to like like get back to that state of well-being that we maybe used to be in. Yeah, we're we're, we're essentially uh, fighting an uphill battle in a post-industrialized era against a host of modern assailants that human biology hasn't had to face in thousands of years. And I'll, I'll, I'll get to what I mean by that momentarily, but just real quick, what you said about picking the plant and the nutrients and minerals potentially decreasing in density or degrading pretty quickly after that plant is, is picked. That is true to a certain extent. I mean, the same way that if you, um, you know, if you have a vitamin D supplement, you know, you leave it out in the heat and the light and it oxidizes and especially become less effective over time. Um, when when you look at a lot of packaged and processed foods that have sat stagnant, you know, in containers, often with many preservatives to to keep some semblance of them alive, or at least keep you know mold or or other things at bay. There's there's certainly some truth to that, but there's also truth to the fact that some things can become more unlocked or activated when taken from a vine or a tree or a plant or a root. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's a book called Eating on the Wild Side by author uh, Joe Robinson, where she describes how if you're going to have like a kale salad uh, the next day or some kind of leafy green salad, you actually see an upregulation in antioxidants, which in many cases are plant defense mechanisms. If you tear up the leafy green the day prior to eating it, then put it into the fridge because the plant thinks it's being eaten by a wild animal upregulates its plant defense mechanisms. And then when you consume it, you're actually getting more of those so-called hormetic benefits of those plant defense mechanisms, like a lot more of the concentration of the antioxidants, if it's kind of like ripped apart and torn apart prior to consuming, or like a, like a vine ripened tomato that you pick, like a nice plump heirloom tomato. You know, if you're a guy concerned about prostate health, all the lycopene that tomato is fantastic for you. But if you like uh, skin, and peel and de-seed the tomato to get rid of some of the problematic lectins in there, and then you cook it, 
you not only make it more digestible and more absorbable, but you actually wind up with a greater concentration of bioavailable lycopene, right? And so, so some plants, you know, if you just pick them straight from the vine and eat them versus fermentation, soaking, sprouting, tearing apart, cooking, etc., you actually can unlock a lot more from plants. But what I think you're probably getting at is that the um, dried blueberries coated with cane sugar and soybean oil that you buy at the healthy food section of Hudson's booksellers as you're wandering through the airport is definitely not going to be as good for you as like a nice wild blueberry that you pick as you're wandering through the forest somewhere. So yeah, there, there's definitely something to be said for that. But but back to the to the um, to the post-industrialization and us using something like biohacking to fight that uphill battle, it really is true. Like, you know, for example, water. We know that water, as it tumbles over rocks and in underground aquifers and through springs and gets hit by sunlight, there's actually an electrical charge in the water that allows it to be better absorbed by the body. Um, it's, it's a little bit more of what we would call live water or water that, that forms what's called an exclusion zone that allows the water, when it's part of your blood, to more easily travel through vasculature. There's wonderful books about this, like... Uh, Human Heart, Cosmic Heart by Dr. Thomas Cowan or uh, Understanding the Heart by Dr. Stephen Hussey that, that goes into this idea of water within the body being more structured and, and closer to nature. And the fact is using, using a, you know, a technology like a, like a structured water filter, for example, you can take water that's been sitting in a well or a cistern or, or pipes in the home or in a, in a glass or a plastic bottle and kind of restructure it by using that technology so it's closer to nature. So that'd be one example of using a you know technology to bring yourself closer to nature. Like the example I gave about sunlight, right? Maybe you can't get out in the sun because you have you know an office job and you got to be indoors for eight hours a day. Well, maybe you buy some red lights to simulate what sunlight does for you, even though you're unable to get outdoors. Maybe you can't go outside barefoot, right? But you can, because you don't want to whatever look like a dirty hippie walking around the street or maybe there's <laughs> needles or glass on the floor but but you can get like a grounding mat that you can sleep on or a grounding mat that you can stand on while you're working in your office and like be grounded you've got one right there I've nice I've, I've, yeah i've got one i've got one beside me in my office actually there's a like a mat i stand on that has a wire going up my office door with a stake that's planted into the grass oh wow outside my office so <gasps> natural so grounding that works yeah, to stick so, the stake so in the ground yeah, you can also ground into the like any properly grounded outlet. Right, that's what home. mine does. But I, I notice better effects when it's just staked straight into the ground, um, and part of that could be placebo, and I just feel like it's more natural. But either way, placebo you know, is effective. Like, I mean, placebo is a real yeah. effect. Oh yeah, I mean, if it works, it works. Water, light, earthing, grounding. Like we can use technology to bring these type of things that might be. Um, less natural in a post-industrial era, right? Like bottled plastic water and standing on carpet inside instead of being outside in the sun or, or being under modern fluorescent LED lighting versus being able to go outside. We can use technology such as biohacks to bring ourselves closer to nature and kind of have the both, best of both worlds, like live in a post-industrial era, but then also be kind of closer to nature using technologies, not as an excuse not to you know, go outside and walk on the beach in your bare feet and jump in the ocean, get in the sunlight. But as a way to bring some of that stuff indoors or into a post-industrial lifestyle as well. And, you know, you, you could say 
the the same for um you know for for something like nutrition like i was talking about with with you know supplementation to replace what our ancestors might have done or, or you talked about wi-fi and radiation and airline travel and we could even do things that our ancestors never would have had to have done because they weren't flying in giant metal tubes 40,000 feet above the earth but we know that for example high amounts of radiation so-called non-natural emf uh, or electromagnetic fields they can kind of damage the cells they they cause the what are called the voltage gated calcium channels in cells to open up and you get a calcium influx into the cell and that results in a, a slightly more positive charge inside the cell than would be acceptable for normal human cellular metabolism. And at the same time, the same type of radiation can cause a little bit of, of DNA damage and accelerate aging and, and the protein folding mechanisms in your body in a similar respect. So when I fly, you know, for example, I can take a supplement like, uh, like NAD, right, which is a common anti-aging molecule used to repair DNA and take more of that when I fly, preferably paired with something else that allows the NAD to repair the cells, uh, which would be uh, something called a sirtuin, like resveratrol or wild blueberry powder or, uh, or any of the dark purples and, and reds and blues that we might find in nature or in, or in supplement form. I can take magnesium right, to help offset some of that calcium influx into the cell. Um, and I can even use something like, uh, let, let's say, uh, again, I'm on an airplane, I'm flying, I don't want the airplane food, I want to shut down some of the inflammation. I talked about those ketones earlier, right? Oh, I can take a shot of ketone esters or, or, or a supplement like ketone salts, and that further can help to mitigate the inflammation and also keep me from, you know, stuffing food in my face when that airplane meal comes by and I've got nothing to do and I'm bored, so why not eat? You know, the ketones just take away all hunger. So that would be an example of biohacking flying with nutrients, right? You, you get on flight, you have NAD, you have magnesium, you have ketones, you feel a lot better when you land, especially if you can, you know, get outside barefoot or travel with one of these grounding or earthing mats. And so that's an example, again, of what we could probably call biohacking, right? Like better living through science to live healthier in a post-industrial era full of modern assailants that could harm our biology. But if, that if we do the right things is going to have a lot less of a, a dramatic effect upon our day to day function. I'm just curious, your perspective on aging. Is there is there a certain point in time where we're supposed to release this sort of expectation level of being a certain way, looking a certain way, feeling a certain way? Or essentially, is there a belief that you can kind of hack your way to, uh, you know, the fountain of youth of life for a very long time? The, the modern anti-aging and longevity movement is kind of interesting because I think on one hand, we have like the transhumanists who want to live forever or at least live until they're 180 or 200 or 220 or whatever. And, um, you know, the, these are the type of folks who might be looking at, at things like, you know, cryopreservation of their head when they die so that when we're able to plant that brain and head on a new body, they will go on to live in eternity, you know, and that's under, of course, the assumption that the, the seat of consciousness and life itself is in the brain, which I don't think it is, but it's, a, it's an interesting <laughs> thought. Um, and people who are spending like half their lives cold and hungry and libidoless and fasting and doing cold baths and, you know, sleeping at night in a hyperbaric chamber instead of with their loved one, because they just want to live forever. And, you know, I, I think that that form of life extension and a focus on anti-aging is unhealthy and is unrealistic 
versus embracing embracing death and the natural life death cycle and honoring death and recognizing death is simply the the passage into the the next step of, of life and so I'm, I'm definitely not in kind of like the transhumanist sector when it comes to anti-aging and longevity yet at the same time i think that by taking steps to simultaneously increase or improve both your lifespan and your health span you can equip yourself to be more impactful and more purposeful each day with the years that you have been given you can equip yourself to not only be more present in relationships or with your grandkids or with loved ones or active in the local community when you're you know 80 or 90 or 100 when others who might not have done the same things might be you know kind of relegated to a wheelchair or in a nursing home when they're when they're 70 um, so there's the impact and the purpose part of things. Um, and then there's just the fact that, you know, when when you're engaging in a lot of these anti-aging and longevity tactics, like, say, you know, using NAD or getting out in the sunshine or using earthing and grounding technologies or drinking better water or even doing things like, you know, stem cell or exosome infusions or some of these more fringe things, as long as they're not, in my opinion, Taking up a disproportionate amount of time and energy, again, back back to the ironic nature of like doing so much to live a long time that you're spending half the time that you'd be living longer, just doing things to make you live longer. But as, as long as, as you're reasonable and responsible in your approach, I think that really the beauty of a lot of these anti-aging and longevity tactics are A, equipping yourself to have better health span and lifespan so you can be more impactful with the purpose and the skill set that God has given you during this time that you are on the planet, no matter how long that time is, whether it's 70 or 80 or 90 or 150, you know, it's about impact and purpose and being fully functional. And then B, and this is the part that, you know, I, I recently addressed this on a beauty and anti-aging podcast that I did with a, a local uh, um, physician who does things like, you know, uh, hair treatments and PRP for the face and wrinkle treatments and, you know, working on symmetry and beauty of the body. I think that having a certain amount of pride in your image and how you look as you age is reasonable. You know, and I'm not, I'm not a fan of like, you know, let's say women who are 60 years old walking around looking like they're trying to be 20 year old college students. I think it often just pulls off a look like a, like a lot of these women, they just almost look like old hookers. Uh, but you know, it just like, you know, fake boobs and the Botox treatments and the clothing that, really is more appropriate for someone who's 40 years younger. I, I mean, I think that, that that aspect of the beauty movement is, again, like fear of death, running from the changes that you should be accepting as honorable changes for your body and just the shift into another chapter of life. But at the same time, like, I think you can be beautiful and handsome and symmetrical and well-kept and well put together as you age due to a lot of these things like say, maybe doing a clay mask every week and doing some derma rolling or micro needling for your scalp or making sure that you stay fit and symmetrical and working on mobility and doing all these things to stay kind of put together and even arguably beautiful as you age. And I think that that's good because it gives you self-confidence. I think it shows that you care for and respect the body that you've been given. And let's face it, if you're in this to fulfill Maslow's hierarchy of needs, to care for your family, to feed yourself, to make an income, et cetera. We know that people who care for themselves, they, you know, they, they tend to get paid more. They tend to get hired in better positions. They tend to get respected more. They tend to get taken more seriously. So, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly think that there's something to responsible embracing of the beauty 
movement in anti-aging as well. I think it all depends on the lens through which you view these things and the reason in your heart that you're doing them. And if it is, if it is noble and sound and to be able to be more impactful and to make other people around you feel more comfortable and to have more self-confidence in yourself, you know, I, I love a lot of these tactics. And, you know, that was originally what Boundless was going to be. Like I sat down to write that book three years ago as a book on anti-aging and longevity. And, you know, as you can see, the chapter on anti-aging and longevity in that book is like 150 pages long. But, the you know, I realized that there's just so many pathways that you have to take care of if you want to age gracefully, like the immune system and the gut and the brain and the muscles and the lymph and, you know, all, all these different factors that it, the book kind of morphed into just an all-encompassing blueprint for the human body with certain chapters on longevity. But, you know, that, that was originally, I was super interested in that book, just being about anti-aging and longevity and realized you really can't so just much like, more. Like, take that without addressing everything else. <laughs> so much more. Uh, genetics. I feel like as these things come up, a lot of people want to make an excuse about, um, uh, you know, well, I have bad genetics or look at my parents or whatever. But of course, as science moves on, we learn about epigenetics and we learn how, I mean, our, our DNA is changing all the time. So uh, is this a viable excuse or reason? Is it a reason or an excuse, genetics? Um, it, it's a great question. So it's, it of course returns to that, you know, classic analogy of being someone who's holding dynamite, but the dynamite is not going to harm you unless you also light a match. And I, I've actually never held dynamite and lit it. So I'm, I'm kind of just going off what other people tell me, but you know, if you, if you have a match and you strike it and you light the dynamite, then it becomes an issue. Right. And so yeah, like for me personally, I discovered several years ago through 23andMe genetic testing, which I don't think is the gold standard for genetic testing. I actually like one called Stratagene, which really identifies the most problematic genes that you really should care about and address versus a whole laundry list of genes that just make you lay awake at night and worry. But I, I found that I had a significantly higher risk for uh, two things, type 2 diabetes and colon cancer, right? I also found out relatively useless information like what my eye color was and, you know, whether or not I was predisposed to, you know, I guess it's somewhat useful, like oxidizing coffee faster. But but the the big ones are like chronic disease risk factors that you can look at. And then, yeah, you, you could just get super scared and use that as a way to worry yourself into oblivion or ironically worry yourself into the disease that you've just found out that you have a higher percentage uh, of, of getting. But then, in my opinion... If you're willing to take actionable steps towards reducing your risk for said disease, genetic testing is, is highly valuable. In my case, when I saw that I had a higher than normal risk for type 2 diabetes, I very much began to study uh, you know, ways that you can manage things like pancreatic function and insulin sensitivity. And I began to wear a continuous blood glucose monitor just to kind of know how often during the day my blood glucose was going up and down. I began to be more cognizant of looking at labels and, and in particular for me, paying attention to some of the sugar and carbohydrate content of the meals. I began to do things like, you know, on, on days in which I knew I was going to eat more carbohydrates or more sugars, doing things like cold thermogenesis or, you know, cold showers or cold baths or, you know, going swimming in a, in a cold body of water, you know, doing weight training, which very quickly depletes the muscle glycogen levels and restores insulin sensitivity. I began using compounds like apple cider vinegar and 
Ceylon cinnamon and bitter melon extract before meals to stabilize my blood glucose. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I've become far healthier. And my risk for that type 2 diabetes to manifest is arguably much lower because I'm using the genetic data to inform myself and take actionable steps, not just worry, right? And, and so I also, uh, you know, actually, actually prostate and colon cancer were two of the risks that were high for me. So, so I actually am careful to do things like I was talking about, like, you know, lycopene, for example, from fresh tomatoes, um, not to freak anybody out, but I even do like, you know, I, I do uh, uh, coffee enema, you know, a couple of times a month and sometimes even once a week to, to care for my colon health. I uh, know that sounds fringe, but, but, you know, it's, it's something that I'm, I'm comfortable with. And so, you know, I'll, I'll do everything from, from the mild lifestyle practices to things that people might balk at like a, like a coffee enema, but, but I use that information to care for my body properly. And so, yeah, I, I think if you use it properly, genetics can give you a genetic testing in particular can give you a lot of actionable information. And, and so, you know, same thing with my kids, they've both been tested. They, neither of them, they're twin 13 year old boys produce appreciable amounts of glutathione endogenously, which is a very potent antioxidant, which they actually need. And so they supplement with glutathione in the mornings. They also mm. have one of the genes responsible for lowering or allowing them to not produce as much brain-derived neurotrophic, neurotrophic factor, BDNF, which is like miracle growth for the brain. Now, two ways to increase BDNF, actually three good ways to do it are regular sauna uh, and aerobic exercise and lion's mane mushroom extract. My kids actually take lion's mane several mornings of the week. They hit the sauna two or three times a week to do like some breath work and different things I've taught them how to do in the sauna. And they have little workouts that they do that include elements of aerobic fitness because I know I'm giving them a step up in life early in life because they know their genetic blueprint and the steps that they take each week can help that genetic blueprint to manifest in better ways. Wow. Wow. I, I mean, how fascinating to see how a generation of those kids are going to become as adults. Um, you know, we might we might start living to 125 naturally. Who knows? Um, <clears throat> so let's say somebody wants to because you're talking about a lot about testing and different things. And and I think it's such a cool resource we have now with technology to be able to um, have this accessible to anybody through the mail, essentially. Uh, so what if I've, I mean, I'm so fascinated with the body. I have been working out since I was 14 years old and especially being in sports and everything from physical performance to mental performance. Uh, but I, I mean, I'm always curious about God, what is the best diet for me? When's the best time to eat? Cause like intermittent fasting's really screwed me up cause I don't like to be hungry. And I like, I'm like one of those rare people <laughs> that I feel worse Usually when I work out, if I haven't ate, then if I do, I feel great if I do. Um, so I'm like, when do I eat? What do I eat? Uh, and then how do I work out and what's too much? And so let's say you're some, this is, this is, I'm probably the norm, right? Am I, I mean, I feel mm -hmm. like I would be the normal person. It's like, what do I eat? When do I eat it? And how do I work out? Um, mm -hmm. Maybe breaking, maybe we have to break it down into two different ways, but what are the testing protocols that you would recommend that are the most beneficial to figuring to like the first step in there? And I know hormones are a thing and I, it's, it's actually to uh -huh. ramble on. Um, I've been doing hormone testing, um, oh, like every two weeks for, for six weeks and, 
learning more about myself and like the fact that I have a, like a low thyroid and, you know, trying to fix that kind of thing. So I, I mean, hormone testing seems like one of them for mm. sure. Uh, but what other kind of testing would you recommend? And even for hormones, maybe, of course, I'm sure, I think you have the Dutch test. You said that's a really good one. Um, but where do, where does someone start? And I don't mean like, maybe, maybe there's like a bare minimum, like what's the entry level, but I'm kind of more curious about like level two or three here. <laughs> right. Kind of like full optimization. Yeah. I love that question. And it, it's, it's insightful because it acknowledges the fact that we are, you know, there's a great book about this by a guy named Roger Williams called Biochemical Individuality. We are all biochemically individual. We have different vitamin D excretion rates. We have different uric acid excretion rates and responses to higher or lower levels of protein intake. We have different sized stomachs, and different sized livers and different sized pancreas. As you read this book, it's great because oh, wow. these illustrations, like 12 different liver shapes and sizes. And, and then we have all the genes that we just talked about. And, you know, th this basically dictates the fact that what works for one person, especially nutritionally, is not going to work for another. And it also makes quite shameful the fact that, you know, in the nutrition industry, the, you know, the, the dirty, dark secret is that if you want to make a lot of money, you write a book and you write a book that's a diet book. And you say that you, know, you proclaim that, that this diet is, is the best diet for all of humankind. And you sell a lot of books. And unfortunately, that diet might work for a small subset of individuals. You brought up the example of, you said, screwing yourself up with intermittent fasting. Well, like 80% of the research that's done on fasting or human science in general is done on men, not women. And while we know that a 12 to 16 hour daily intermittent fast is actually quite good for cellular autophagy or cellular cleanup or longevity or better, better metabolic function or better fat burning efficiency in a male population, women uh, have a, a hormone called kisspeptin that is released, premenopausal women, that is responsible for inducing the release of things like follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone and a lot of the elements responsible for normal fertility and normal endocrine balance. And when a woman fasts for longer than about 12 hours, that hormone, kispeptin, is significantly downregulated, mm -hmm. resulting in endocrine dysfunction, low energy levels, low libido, poor ability to be able to put on muscle or lose fat, et cetera. Yet women read a lot of these fasting books and they say, well, I'm supposed to do a 16 hour daily intermittent fast. Mm -hmm. Then they don't feel well after a certain period of time. And and, and it turns out that, that premenopausal women respond better to fasts, intermittent fasts of about 10 to 12 hours in duration versus men who do better on daily intermittent fasts of 12 to 16 hours in duration. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is that once a woman is postmenopausal, that flips and that 12 to 16 hour intermittent fast actually okay. becomes a, a good life extending hack for a postmenopausal woman. You know, another example would be the, the ketogenic diet that helped your neighbor to lose 20 pounds for you if you have, say, familial hypercholesteremia or a poorly functioning gallbladder, so you're not digesting fat well, or you have, let's say, uh, an ApoE4 gene, which would dictate increased risk of Alzheimer's and dementia and cardiovascular disease, particularly in response to saturated fats. The ketogenic diet is not going to be that great of an option for you. And so what I'm getting at here is that to choose the perfect diet you do need to customize. And the beauty is that we live in an era where if you want to be very data driven in your approach, 
the same type of test that would have cost like tens of thousands of dollars, let's say the, you know, the Princeton Longevity Institute uh, a decade and a half ago, you can now do often in the comfort of your own home for a fraction of that cost. Mm -hmm. And so even though in, uh, in the latter pages of Boundless, I have multiple matrices for about 13 different diets. I say, okay, so we've got the paleo diet, a plant-based diet, a carnivore diet, an autoimmune diet, a Weston A. Price diet, et cetera, et cetera. If your bloods look like this, if your genes look like this, if your urine panel looks like this, this is probably the diet that you should consider. Um, you know, and granted, I, I think probably in a few years, there'll be enough uh, AI-driven and algorithmic platforms out there that allow technology to just spit out those kind of diets for you based on, on your input and your lab data and your exercise levels and your body size, et cetera. It shocks me that something that comprehensive doesn't exist yet, but it doesn't, you know, it's still, you know, guys like me are just still spending time pouring through somebody's labs and telling them how they should eat. But I, I wish that a computer could put me out of a job in that sense, because it'd be far, far more um, convenient and allow me to be freed up to do other creative tasks and so um, that being said, I think that uh, for, for me, like if a client comes to me and they're just like, I, you know, expenses aside, tell me how I should eat and tell me what tests I need to get to tell me how I should eat or how I should exercise. Um, typically the tests are as follows. A really good blood panel that's a little bit more comprehensive than the basic blood panel your doctor is going to run. I think uh, the, the one I like and the one I use most is the Wellness FX uh, more fancy blood package. There's one I helped them design called the Greenfield Longevity Blood Testing. There's one for men, there's one for women. It's a very comprehensive test of basic blood parameters, like all your lipids, all your thyroid, um, you know, your, your, uh, your white blood cells, your red blood cells, et cetera, et cetera. So you got your blood panel. Now a blood panel often won't tell you a lot of smaller micronutrients micronutrients like smaller amino acids, some of the fatty acid balances, et cetera. And so for that, there's another test called a NutraVal that I recommend in addition to that basic blood panel. So that's what you'd want for blood, would be something like the Wellness FX Longevity Package and then a NutraVal blood test. For hormones, because hormones tend to fluctuate throughout the day, you mentioned the Dutch panel, and I actually really like the Dutch panel, particularly the one called the Dutch Complete for both neurotransmitter, right, like brain neurotransmitter balances and hormone balances. And that's just peeing on a, on a little pee stick uh, four to five times during a 24 hour period. And it'll give you melatonin, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, DHEA, everything, but a lot more accurately than a single snapshot blood test would give you. Okay, so, the, right. That'd be the third. Um, the next would be a very good uh, gut panel. I like the one by Genova Diagnostics. It's a three-day stool panel because your stool is going to, it's kind of gross to think about, but it's going to fluctuate in terms of the presence of parasites and yeast and fungus and inflammatory markers, et cetera, from day to day. So doing a three-day analysis is more accurate than a one-day analysis. And that's just a stool kit that's that's sent to your home. You know, you, you poop in a little hot dog tray and you make your loved ones and your families all nervous as your poop sits there in the refrigerator in a prepaid FedEx bag waiting to be shipped out and you tell people not to eat the FedEx bag. Uh, but, uh, but the, but the three day stool panel for yeast, parasites, fungus, bacterial balance in the gut. I actually like that and find it more meaningful than these fancy genetic panels for the gut, like, you know, Viome or longevity or, you know, that you can get useful that out of those. But when we're talking about dietary prescription, I just like that, that three day gut panel, similar to that for the gut, a really good food allergy panel so that you don't get a, 
laundry list of false positives and like a hundred different foods you're not supposed to eat because the panel's inaccurate, but something that's gonna test like the, the white blood cell reaction to a raw and a cooked version of the protein, use really good data to actually tell you what you're truly allergic or intolerant to is helpful. And I like to have that if I'm working on a nutrition plan for somebody. White blood cell count goes up and down versus because of the food that you take in? Yeah, there, there's an immune system reaction to, to any food. That's why what? for many people, okay. foods, foods that cause an amplified immune reaction, you know, like soy or wheat or seeds and nuts, et cetera, like th those can be problematic for some people, not all of them, but some of them. Like I, I was going through somebody's test yesterday and you know they weren't lit up like a Christmas tree on the food allergy panel, but there were a few noticeable things on there that were staples in their diet, uh, like almonds and and shellfish for example you know for me i'm pretty clean like i don't have that big of a food allergy response to anything except uh oddly enough green beans and i always thought it was weird because i never felt that great after i had green beans never liked them intuitively that much always noticed my blood sugar would go up almost like a stress response to eating them and i got tested it turns out i actually have a true food allergy response to green beans so i just don't eat those anymore and the food allergy panel that i like for that is called cyrex c-y-r-e-x and they do, they do really good food allergy panels. So we've got our blood panel, our micronutrients blood panel, our, our gut test, right? Our food allergy test, our Dutch panel. And then the, uh, the, the last one that I like that I kind of already mentioned would be like a really good genetics panel. Uh, the one I like for that is called Stratagene because it'll tell you everything from whether or not you are able to you know, use methylated B vitamins properly or whether you need more methylation support, how good your nitric oxide pathways are and whether you should be doing more like beets, arugula, you know, sauna, things to increase nitric oxide, how good, you know, like those glutathione pathways for my boys, how good those are. But again, it's not a laundry list of useless genetic data. It's just like the, the nine or so so-called dirty genes that you actually should pay attention to if they wind up to be issues on your panel. So then... Most of that data is like emailed to you in a PDF or delivered to you within a couple of weeks after testing. Then you can sit down with that and say, okay, so I see that I have high inflammation. I'm low on vitamin D and magnesium. I have maybe a little bit of a, a yeast infection going on in the gut right now. And I'm allergic to almonds and Brazil nuts and duck. And I, uh, I've got good testosterone levels, but my progesterone and my DHEA are a little low. So then you could sit down and say, okay, well, whatever the, the type of diet that's going to work well is let's say, a you know, a, a, a paleo autoimmune diet for eight weeks, followed by reintroduction of some of the problematic foods and a more all-inclusive diet, um, and some support for vitamin D and magnesium and progesterone and DHEA, right? So, so it's kind of a data-driven process, but in my opinion, rather than just like stabbing in the dark about how you're supposed to eat the rest of your life, you invest a couple of thousand bucks and you just know beyond a shadow of a doubt with laser-like precision that what you're eating is actually customized to optimize you. That all being said, when you look at the blue zones, when you look at areas where people are living a disproportionately long period of time, you know, Nicoya and um, Sardinia and Okinawa and Loma Linda and all these blue zone hotspots around the world, you do see no matter whether they're more plant-based, no matter whether they're high carb, low fat, high fat, low carb, no matter you know the type of plants and herbs and spices that they're using, key characteristics of each of those populations that in sort of a Venn diagram overlap 
no matter what the diet is. And those would include A, some element of fasting and protein restriction on certain days of the week or at certain periods of time during the year, such as a religious fast, such as a, a daily or, or, or weekly, like one day where you're not eating protein or meats, uh, perhaps a certain period of time each spring, summer, winter, and fall, where you might go four to five days eating a lower calorie diet or doing more of like a cleanse or a detox. You know, basically this idea that autophagy or cellular cleanup or fasting is woven into culture as part of the diet. We also see that food is consumed in a parasympathetic, low stress state, chewed very, very well, and typically eaten with people in a celebratory manner or in a manner in which relationships are being built. Big glorious family dinners, eating mindfully and chewing your food, paying attention as you cook a meal, that you're meditating over it and generating you know, positive energy and prayers and gratitude over that food and not, you know, sucking down a smoothie while you're speeding down the freeway at 65 miles an hour on your way to work, right? So food is consumed mindfully and often in a celebratory fashion with people. Um, and then finally, uh, and there's no surprises here, you see a relative absence of packaged and processed foods, right? You don't see a lot of Trader Joe's or Costco or even, you know, Whole Foods, it's a lot of, you know, gardens and animals and hunting, just eating as close to nature as possible, which I understand is a a little bit more difficult in the post-industrial era that we were talking about, but right, that's you know, the you beginning can, questions about like yeah. trying to get back to where we were and you know right. get the nutrients from the garden again. Right, you can use a community-supported agriculture to get some produce delivered to your house or to the local farmers market. You can do more farmers market than grocery store. You can do a little patio grow or an indoor pantry grow under some lights. Like once you educate yourself, this stuff is shockingly easy to do. I mean, like during. COVID, I got into growing sprouts from like little $2.99 seed packets I get on Amazon. I, yeah. I could grow organic sprouts for pennies on the dollar and have this wonderful unlocked plant nutrition in my pantry. And it, it took me like an hour to learn. And after that, I'm set for life with, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a theoretical you know, zombie apocalypse friendly food that I can, you know, tap into anytime. So that's, I know it's a long answer to your question, but that's kind of where to start with nutrition is use data-driven testing. And then once you've dialed in the diet that's appropriate for you, borrow from our ancestors ancestrally proven tactics to enhance the health of any diet, such as fasting, elements mm -hmm. of protein restriction, eating with people, eating mindfully, celebrating food, being grateful for it, and eating as close to nature as possible. Common sense, but also there's some stuff in there that we can go beyond and really understand and be preventative, which I think, you know, in the light of everything that's happened in the last year, I feel like there's a lot more of an appetite for pre prevention and for awareness uh, and taking charge of health, which is when it first hit, I thought that could be the best one of the best things to come out of this is people actually looking at themselves and going, how can I take care of myself better? Uh, one thing that I thought of when you were talking about ancestors and talking about the way things were and, you know, blue zones and, and just, you know, some of the things that we've done that have become creature comforts kind of like prepackaged foods and things like that is, you know, the, the hot, cold sort of uh, you know, contrasting is such a popular thing right now. And I wonder, is there a connection? I'm curious about the, the actual effects of it and what's going on. And I know that there's different sort of uh, fat cells that are um, uh, Im impacted based on the hot and the cold. But 
I remember when I interviewed Wim Hof and him talking about how we're just so, we're so conditioned now. We're so unconditioned for weather. Like we're, we, our bodies are just 75 and sunny every day. And we don't go through the normal experiences that we used to go through with the cold coming and the hot and we have air conditioning and we're, we're just, we're wusses basically was kind of what he was saying. So is that somewhat of maybe even, I'm, this is just a little like something that just hit me. I wonder if that has something to do with the hot and cold stuff that we're doing is that we're just, we're so far from where we used to be, where you used to be exposed to this stuff. And so we're regaining some of that old ability that the body, that the body, uh, can do mm -hmm. to adapt and mitochondria and everything that gets impacted from it. And then also probably going beyond it with a little extra. Oh yeah. I mean, there's great recent books about that. Like what doesn't kill us by Scott Carney or the comfort crisis by Michael Easter. And it's this idea that those things that could kill you in large amounts, such as sunlight radiation or heat or excess times in the cold, or excess consumption of some of those plant defense mechanisms that I was talking about. They're good for you in small amounts in microdoses woven throughout the life, right? Like 20 to 60 minutes of sunlight exposure each day, a deep sweat in a sauna a few times a week, an intense burst of cold for two to five minutes in the morning or in the evening, you know, consumption of a wide variety of plants and herbs and spices, but not necessarily having a whole grocery shopping cart full of kale in your blender each morning. You know, this idea that we intelligently expose our bodies to things that are mild stressors to induce cellular resilience. When I say induce cellular resilience, I literally mean increased production of our own endogenous antioxidants, production of things like heat shock proteins and cold shock proteins that protect our cells from excesses of stress that go beyond heat and cold, even things like emotional stress and lifestyle stress. Um, you know, a, a formation of almost like a callus on the skin made of melanin and tanning pigments that protect us from UVA and UVB radiation from the sun, right? There, there are all these responses to these so-called hormetic stressors that ultimately make us stronger. Uh, and heat and cold are, of course, two of those. And, uh, you know, I, I think that we've seen much research of late, particularly out of Finland, that a, that a robust sauna practice is something that when you isolate for all confounding variables, uh, reduces all-cause risk of mortality, uh, particularly in, in men, but you also see this in women, uh, as well as reduced risk of dementia, Alzheimer's, diabetes, etc. What they don't tell you, and I've been to I've been to, to, to do sauna in in Finland many times, you know, they're not just in the sauna, they're jumping into the Baltic sea, you know, at the men's Finnish sauna society and then back in the sauna and into the cold. And so I think it's more the combination of the heat and the cold than just the heat. But, you know, um, I guess since I have to go pretty soon, I should bring this full circle and say that, you know, we, we were talking about biohacking versus natural living earlier. And I think we've really highlighted the fact that you can harness benefits from kind of having one foot planted in the realm of ancestral science and another foot planted in the realm of, of modern science. And I think that combining the two, you know, combining both biohacking and natural living is really ultimately a good way to live a long time and feel good doing it. And so if you are eating healthy based on some of the nutritional principles and, and testing that I've outlined, if you're moving well, which we didn't address, but it essentially involves, you know, low level physical activity throughout the day, sometimes lifting heavy stuff, occasionally sprinting, whether via tennis or soccer or on an airdyne or whatever else. And 
uh, you do doing some amount of mobility, you know, some stretching, some foam rolling. It's really not that complex to to move well. I think walking is the most underrated activity of all movements. Uh, but uh, let's assume you're eating well and you're moving healthy. Then I think 90% of the additional benefit comes from just charging up your body's battery. You know, I'll throw two more books at you. The Body Electric by Robert Becker and Healing is Voltage by Jerry Tennant. Both excellent books, which dictate the fact that, as I alluded to earlier when I was talking about the airplane, your cells operate with a proper electrochemical balance across the membrane. Your cells operate like a, like a battery with a slight negative charge on the inside of that membrane and a slight positive charge on the outside. And there are certain things that can keep that battery charged that a lot of people, I think, who are eating well and moving well, neglect. And that would be uh, good water and mineral intake, which helps to carry these charges, such as the minerals, through your body, right? So I personally drink pure, clean, structured, filtered water and use copious amounts of really good minerals, not just table salt, right? But, but really good salts like Celtic salt and black Kona salt and Kalima salt and trace liquid minerals. So my body's constantly getting the, the minerals that carry the electrolytes and the electrical energy into it. You charge up those electrons with photons of light from things like infrared panels or sunlight or an infrared sauna. You go outside barefoot or get outside in the ocean or on the beach with your shoes off or even wearing some of these grounding or earthing shoes we talked about or the type of pad that you're using right now, Danica, so that you're actually getting exposed to the negative ions and electrical impulses from the planet Earth. And then you throw in some heat and some cold to move this electricity through your body. And I mean, gosh, if you, if you eat well, eating a diet that's customized to you, you move naturally and then you get uh, water, minerals, earthing, sunlight, mm -hmm. heat, and cold, I guarantee you, you're going to feel amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe finish up by giving, um, giving us that sort of like level one version of say, I want to get up in the morning and I want to have, I want to burn fat. I want to, um, I want to feel energized. I want to work the inside of me a little bit to recover whatever could be going on inside on a cellular level and have energy. Um, like what would be sort of the, the movement and maybe the nutritional consumption? Like what would the, what would the morning look like for someone going to work? I'm going to challenge myself in the next 60 seconds. I'm going to be going to give you the whole day. Wake up, take care of your spirit with some form of meditation, journaling, prayer, breath work, anything that optimizes that most important part of you, your soul first. While you're in a fasted state, go out, get some sunlight, preferably outside, do something for 20 to a maximum of 40 minutes, right? Just move in that fasted state. Come back, take a cold shower, start your day, eat your breakfast mindfully, take little breaks throughout the day to walk, to move, hang from pull-up bars, swing kettlebells, and be productive, creative, and impactful with whatever your, your purpose in life is. Take a nap in the mid-afternoon or a quick meditation session if you can to get a little decrease in stress and cortisol in the middle of the day. Continue throughout the day, sometime before dinner, lift some weights or do a little high-intensity cardio to get your body ready to be able to receive food and burn glucose well. Have dinner, don't be carb-phobic at dinner. Eat real food for all your meals, but include some extra carbs at dinner. Start to decrease technology, screen time, work, stress, etc. preferably an hour or more before bed. Close your eyes in bed, return to the gratitude, the journaling, the breath work, the care for your soul to bookend the day and fall asleep 
wake up the next day, rinse, wash, and repeat. And that's where I'd start. Thank you. I have a feeling that uh, that is still an adjustment for many. Uh, Probably. So, yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much. Your wealth of knowledge. There's, there's no way that I can touch. I mean, I'm literally like it so high on the level of caring about EMFs, but your book has everything in it. It's all in there. And you've done so many interviews already. The information is out there. I had fun talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I had fun talking to you. And, um, and may maybe I'll have to go back to race car driving school and get ready for, for round two, but I only want to do it when I'm, when I'm kicking your ass on the racetrack. So any, anytime you want to go to the track, uh, I uh, would be happy to, uh, I'd be happy to, uh, to see how that goes. Okay. As long as, as long as we do it once in the car and then maybe again, like a bicycle or something where I could actually potentially have a, 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 at least be more on level playing ground, but that, that sounds fair. All right. All right, cool. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.